from deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, you may have noticed that one thing above everything else drives American politics in uh, the year 2016. And, and I'm not referring to love. Oh, a love of money, yes, kind of, in a way. Money, in fact. And so, um, in a week where we've had what is now being widely described as the largest mass shooting in American history, although there are those who will uh, dispute that, pointing to some highly untoward, not to say horrid, acts earlier in American history where the victims were of a different color. Nonetheless, we're, we're once again hearing all the familiar debates in America about the subject of guns. I'm speaking to you again today from Australia, a country that fa- that uh, experienced a horrific mass shooting of its own in the middle of the 1990s, the Port Arthur massacre. At the time, the country had a conservative prime minister, John Howard. And in the wake of the widespread national revulsion that followed that shooting, conservative prime minister John Howard called for a change in what was then Australia's wide-open gun culture. And today, as you walk the streets of Australia, or talk to people here, of course, this is a generation later, the population is puzzled, absolutely just mystified at how America the United States, that is to say, not Canada. We're not talking about you, Canada, about how the United States could continue to be a place where a guy like the guy in this week's events can go purchase an AR-15. Off the shelf. Now, we're not, the United States is not Australia. And we know that there is a very, very vibrant strong, determined lobbying organization that contributes a huge amount of money, well, a a significant amount of money, to congressional candidates in districts across the country to encourage them to support that organization's position. If you believe public opinion polls at all, I'll wait for you to decide whether you do, it's usually reported that about 70% of Americans favor a position opposite to that of that particular lobby. Which raises the question, wouldn't it be incumbent upon those people to raise enough money to contribute to congressional candidates to get a different result? Because in America, in politics, only one language is spoken these days. It has only one letter, an S with a line through it. Hello, welcome to the show.
from Melbourne, Australia, right near the Yarra River. You know where I'm talking about. Melbourne, by the way, not Melbourne. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. First, well, not first, but third, um, in following up an item on last week's broadcast, the Air Force has recovered that database that holds thousands of Inspector General's records. Inspector General of the Air Force. Uh, after the database crashed, the crash was reported on last week's show. The recovery is being reported on this week's show. That's uh, from the Air Force this week. After aggressively aggressively leveraging all vendor and department capabilities, the Air Force made a full recovery of the automated case tracking system database, the system of record for all records related to Inspector General complaints, investigations, and appeals, according to the Air Force statement. The crash caused some delays in processing requests, but the recovery will allow the service to move forward with minimal effort, which I guess is the way the Air Force likes to move. Now, about our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. You know, following up again, something mentioned here, the sighting of Saudi Arabia by the United Nations and then the taking it off the United Nations blacklist for civilian casualties in the war in Yemen that the Saudi Arabia-led coalition is carrying on against the Iranian-supported Houthi rebels. The U.S. House of Representatives this week narrowly defeated a measure that would have banned U.S. transfer of cluster bombs to Saudi Arabia. The vote was close, mostly along party lines. 200 Republicans heeded the Obama administration's urging to vote against the ban. Well, that's a little weird. The Department of Defense strongly opposes this amendment, said Rodney Frelinghuysen, a Republican of New Jersey and chairman of the House Committee on Defense Appropriations. They advise us, he said, that it would stigmatize cluster munitions which are legitimate weapons, he continued, with clear military utility, unquote. In fact, cluster bombs are banned by an international treaty signed by 119 countries. Guess who didn't sign it? The United States. It opposed the treaty. Instead of signing it, the United States adopted a policy that cluster bombs should never be used in civilian areas. The way the Saudi Arabia led coalition has earlier this year said a supporter of the amendment Hank Johnson of Georgia the Saudi-led coalition dropped cluster bombs in Yemen's capital specifically targeting known civilian neighborhoods one of the buildings hit was the Center for Care and Rehabilitation of the Blind which also has a school for children he added the destruction of the school and the injuries sustained by the children was unbearably gruesome unquote much like our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. The coalition has also used U.S.-produced weapons to destroy markets, factories, and hospitals. Well, we destroy hospitals. Come on. Everybody destroys hospitals, don't they? And now... What the frack? 
A British shale gas company is considering dumping wastewater from fracking, about which this whole segment has a lot to say. Uh, They are considering dumping that wastewater in the sea. Well, of course, the sea. That's where you dump everything, isn't it? Ineos, Ineos, which owns uh, a refinery and holds 21 shale licenses, many in the northwest of England, as well as North Yorkshire and the East Midlands, has said it wants to become the biggest player in the UK's nascent shale gas industry. In an email sent a couple months ago to a resident in a district in North Yorkshire where council people gave the go-ahead to a fracking application by another company, a senior executive said that water produced during fracking could be discharged in the sea after being treated. It hasn't previously said where treated water would be released. Shell companies pump water, chemicals, and sand at high pressure underground to fracture shale rock and release the gas within. Each well can use as much as 6 million gallons of water. You've got plenty of that, don't you? Between 20 and 40 percent flows back to the surface, containing salts, chemicals, and naturally occurring radioactive material, including radon, which the British Environment Agency says is likely to be classified as radioactive waste. Meanwhile, in the United States, a report from the Center for Public Integrity calls the radioactive waste stream from, horror, from shocking operations orphan waste because no single government agency is fully managing it. Each state kind of figures out its plans. Willy-nilly, you remember him, Ohio hasn't formal waste rules, while New York, which banned fracking, still allows waste disposal with little oversight, according to the center. The uh, water that's the result of fracking is called produced water. It's water laced with chemicals, metals, and naturally occurring radioactive elements. They come up thousands of feet along with the gas and oil. The easiest way to get rid of it is to inject it back into the ground, but that can lead to pollution, and you've heard of the earthquakes. A um, fracking company in West Virginia, Antero Resources, is spending $275 million to construct a wastewater facility in West Virginia, going up about a year from this September, which could see up to 600 trucks a day processing 60,000 barrels of wastewater. They want to process it, separate it into salt, sludge, and water. It's becoming more attractive, according to one of Antero's lead civil engineers. Attractive is a term of art. The filtering system would recover about two-thirds of the water, which could be used in drilling, but it leaves behind thousands of tons of salt and hundreds of tons of sludge. Sludge has got to be good for you, don't you think? That concentrates the radioactive materials. The sludge, as much as 180 tons a day, will be disposed of, quote, elsewhere, unquote. We've elected, said a a local official, to take those sludges to a landfill that's currently licensed to accept it, unquote. The official couldn't say which facilities or where. The company is exploring options across the country, so... Look for sludge near you. The Center for Public Integrity report shows that regulators acknowledge the waste is effectively being shopped around by companies hoping for affordable disposal. And tarot officials maintain the industry has no other choice. 
the ocean's full. And this week, Donald Hercher was sentenced in U.S. District Court after the resident of Sycamore Valley, Ohio, pleaded guilty to dumping 50 gallons of oily, oily brine water per week into a roadside ditch, which eventually flows into the Ohio River. He owned Hercher Oil Company, which owns about 30 oil and natural gas wells. April 6th, five years ago, investigators caught him dumping. The brine water he admitted to dumping can contain numerous substances, either naturally occurring from the shale formation or chemicals added during the fracking process. And those radioactive trace elements, such as radium and uranium. Hercher pleaded guilty to unpermitted discharge. Ouch. He must submit a statement to uh, urge other companies to avoid similar dumping. He's got to complete 104 hours of community service, pay $5,000 to the Fish and Wildlife Federation, and he's been ordered to prepare an article to be published in at least three trade journals to educate readers on the waterways of the United States. I wonder if anybody's checking to see if that article will have been plagiarized from another. Oh, he's an oil guy. He's not a writer guy. What the frack? Now on a related subject. The place we uh, try to call home. News of the warm, won't you? Toasty. Following its warmest winter on record, Greenland's ongoing ice melt. They're delicious, by the way. Better than a patty melt. And more nutritious. Greenland's ongoing ice melt, I say, could be gaining strength. A new study in Nature Communications, my favorite kind of communications, focuses on the effects that rising temperatures and changing albedo have had on Greenland. The researchers concluded that among other possible causes, such as tropical weather and latent heat, a phenomenon known as Arctic amplification. I said Arctic amplification. Could be the cause behind melting ice. Arctic amplification explains the perpetuation of melting ice in the poles as the earth has heated up and melted ice. Darker spots in the ocean uncovered by the loss absorb more solar radiation. That further warms the sea, maintains the cycle. The warmer waters could also balance more evenly with waters farther south, thereby impacting the speed, intensity, and consistency of the jet stream, which in turn could bring hotter air farther north. This amplification effect affects the polar regions of the globe where faster warming has already invited research into the effects of ice melts on sea level. The new research contends that with the melting already in motion, the Earth's atmospheric systems could push such effects even further. I blame Earth. And shells of California mussels collected from the Pacific Ocean off the coast of Washington in the 1970s are on average 32% thicker than modern mussel shells, according to a new study published by biologists at the University of Chicago. Shells collected by Native Americans 1,000 to 1,300 years ago were also 27% thicker than modern shells. I blame TV. The decreasing thickness over time, in particular the last few decades, is likely due, in fact, to ocean acidification, a result of increased carbon in the atmosphere. 
The ocean absorbs a large portion of the additional carbon released into the atmosphere that we burn. This in turn causes pH levels of ocean water to drop, making it more acidic. Mussels, oysters, and certain kinds of algae have difficulty producing their calcium carbonate shells and skeletons in such an environment. Makes Halloween more difficult, I would imagine, and can provide an early indicator of how increasing ocean acidification affects marine life. The long-term decline in thickness likely shows a response to ocean acidification. The researchers do consider other environmental effects that could be causing it, including changes in food supply, like plankton, for mussels. They say their findings raise concerns about the California mussel's ability to retain its role as a foundational species in the waters off the California coast. The decreased shell thickness makes them increasingly vulnerable to predators and environmental disturbances, which could affect interactions with hundreds of other species that live near mussel beds in tidal waters. It's a wake-up call for mussels. Get out of beds. News of the Warm, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
Now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for me to read the trades for you. From Advertising Age, U.S. Army and Hollywood team up to change low-tech misperceptions. Me, I'll read it for you. The U.S. Army has partnered with 20th Century Fox, really still 20th, around its upcoming movie, Independence Day Resurgence, to engage recruitment age prospects and bring attention to the service's widely unknown STEM careers and capabilities. Science, technology, engineering, math, STEM. Phase one of the partnership kicked off last month with an ad that encouraged people to visit joinesd.com to experience different missions as part of the movie's fictional Earth Space Defense Force. After users completed challenges, they were met with information about real STEM and tech careers in the Army. What a pleasant surprise. Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army for Marketing, did they tell you such a job existed on career day? Said many Americans view the Army as low-tech and fairly ordinary people. And the truth is very, very different. The Army views the first part of the initiative as a way to highlight its technological prowess, including its tens of thousands of scientists, as well as, astro as, well as astronauts, cyber warriors, and more, said the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Marketing. With the Army's 241st birthday happening this month, happened a couple days ago, the Army and Fox headed into phase two of the program, centering on separating fiction from reality and celebrating, quote, the real people that make sure the American people get to enjoy movies, unquote, the Army's Deputy Secretary for Marketing, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Marketing. Yes, they're fighting to make sure you can enjoy movies. A television spot that interweaves Independence Day resurgence scenes with real Army footage is going to run nationwide, as well as in cinemas leading up to the movie's release later this month. The video is also living... That's advertising age's word. On GoArmy.com and the Army's social channels on YouTube and Facebook. So far on social media, the Army has, quote, been having an ongoing social engagement with the director of the movie, the cast, and Fox Properties, said the Deputy Assistant Marketing Secretary. The hashtag for the effort is hashtag Army Team. He said the partnership with Fox has been a positive experience. That is news. And it's allowed the Army to have lessons on how to better work with the entertainment industry. For example, he said a lot of films and shows have portrayed soldiers in a one-dimensional way in the past. The Army wants to show the complexity of the soldiers and the service. Quote, Hollywood is very influential with the audience we're trying to talk to. And we think if we can get them to see us for who we really are and see stories from the Army in a transparent way, it'd be better for the Army, for America, and for everyone all the way around. Unquote. It's not an Army of One anymore, ladies and gentlemen. 
It's an army of transparency. A conclusion I race to because I read the trades for you. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. From Melbourne, Australia, this is Le Show, and now news of AFPAC. I went falsetto too soon there, didn't I? Okay, sorry about that. Hundreds of trucks have been lining the roads leading to the normally bustling crossing between Pakistan and Afghanistan called Torkham after deadly clashes between the two countries forced the crossing to close. The smell of rotting fruit fills the air, according to Reuters, as drivers expressed frustration, their cargoes perishing in the heat due to the impasse between the two countries over their disputed frontier. Four people were killed in the fighting last week. An escalation of the dispute over Pakistan's attempt to build a gate at the crossing, presumably to stop Islamic militants, Islamist militants, coming in from Afghanistan. That plan angers Afghanistan, which rejects the boundary, the colonial-era Duran Line border drawn up in 1893 and doesn't want a solid recognition of the boundary. The relationship between Afghanistan and Pakistan, as you know, is and has been fraught. Afghanistan, struggling to contain a stubborn insurgency led by Taliban militants, blames Pakistan for harboring Taliban fighters and leaders on its territory. Pakistan still, after all these years, denies it supports militants. Even though the United States killed a Taliban leader in a drone strike recently, he was, in, was a leader of the Afghan Taliban. They killed him with a drone strike in Pakistan. How did that happen? Pakistan says it's building the gate at Torkham to stop the movement of militants coming the other way from Afghanistan. Afghanistan's ambassador to uh, Pakistan accused the latter of reneging on ceasefire terms that he said included halting the construction of the gate. The Durand Line, the border in question, was imposed by the Brits on the Emir of Afghanistan in an attempt to strengthen British control over parts of northern India, of which Pakistan was then still a part. Yes, even then, Afghanistan was collateral damage. It cuts through Pashtun tribal areas, does the boundary, dividing speakers of that language between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Pakistan inherited the border when it became a nation in 1947. There has never been a formal agreement on it with the Afghan government. Meanwhile, Pakistan is now auditioning, interviewing, checking out lobbying firms in Washington to hire one or more after a gap of nearly eight years. It's seeking to refurbish its image in the United States at a time when relations between those two countries are deteriorating, according to Reuters. Ties have been particularly strained following that drone strike that killed Mullah Mansur in western Pakistan, that drone strike. Pakistan said that was a violation of its sovereignty. Relations have also been tense since a plan to buy fighter jets from the United States fell through after the Congress refused to approve the deal last month. 
Pakistan used to have lobbyists in Washington. Now we want to relaunch the effort, said a senior government official, who asked not to be identified since uh, he doesn't want to die. Uh, Pakistan dropped its official lobbying efforts during the rule of General Pervez Musharraf. Now the government has decided it needs help selling its image. Look at India and other countries and how aggressive their public relations is, the official added in dubious grammar. In light of this, and most recently the whole episode with the aircraft, Pakistan has decided it needs to step up its lobbying efforts in D.C. A second government official in the prime minister's media team confirmed the decision, saying it aimed at stepping up efforts to, quote, sell Pakistani interests and improve its image in the United States. Neither official would name the lobbying firms Pakistani officials are talking to. That's how it looks from here. How does it look from over there? From Afghanistan Public Radio, proud to be influenced by the advertisers on our podcasts. From the abandoned American television truck in downtown Kabul, city of a thousand checkpoints, I'm Mahmoud. And I'm Hamid. We're slick and slack, the screw it brothers. <laughs> Welcome to Karzai Talk. Today's program comes to you with the aid of the Shaved Whales Foundation, reminding you that nothing says I love you like whale whiskers. Is, uh, is that one of our new underwriters? Either that or a joke by one of our old writers. <laughs> <laughs> so, my brother, mm. it's fighting season again, mm. and we're fighting again. <laughs> the calendar doesn't lie. <laughs> but this year, my brother, mm. the Taliban have returned to the fight with much greater urgency. Yes, it's as though they spent the winter drinking the Afghan energy drink. Mm -hmm. You must mean Gotorade. <laughs> Gotorade. You, you, hello, you're on cars, I talk. Hi, I'm Josh Flack, long-time public relations consultant, first-time caller. Well, caller, I must say it's an interesting coincidence that your name so cogently describes your long-time occupation. Well, thank you, sir, but it's uh, actually no coincidence. No. No, when I started this company, it seemed a no-brainer to change my name to to fit the business. Oh, what was your original name? Josh Flock. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when people ask why so many Afghans don't have surnames, this, this is, is why. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, guys, hmm? I'm not coming on your show to, <laughs> to talk about myself. Ooh, that makes one of us. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I'm calling on behalf of my newest client, the government of Pakistan. Well, my goodness, sir, normally we have representatives of the government... Uh, or perhaps former strong men of the country coming into our show? Well, I know, but uh, we're trying to improve relations with our friends back in Washington and with the folks in your country, too. Mm. We think your listeners are what we like to call influencers in your country, and we think they care a lot about what you fellows think. Well, if that's what you think, I'd say there's too much thinking going on. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if we could influence the so-called influencers in our country, my brother would be selling a lot more Carolas. <laughs> <laughs> well, possibly, but, you know, today's Pakistan is uh, in the vanguard of some very exciting changes. It's not your grandfather's Pakistan. No, maybe not, but it's claiming my grandfather's border. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't know your grandfather was English. <laughs> but seriously, guys, it's time to take another look at Pakistan. It's on the move. It's business-friendly. 
And it's not nearly as much a center of terrorism as it was before the U.S. drone strike killed a Taliban leader there. <laughs> hey, we're a team. And if you think today's Pakistan is a winner, wait till you see tomorrow's Pakistan. Uh, Josh, what, I, I guess what we find difficult to understand yeah. is why your client is taking unilateral steps to fortify the border mm-hmm. only after all the Taliban leaders have chased into safe haven in your client. Hey, mood. It's hardly a safe haven if the U.S. can send over drones to take folks out. But look, we're all against the bad guys. We just happen to think that cooperation is a two-way street. Well, that starts with the first step, mm-hmm. which is paving. <laughs> but, Colin Josh, yep. do you have a question for us? Otherwise, our producer will be demoted to reading funding credits. <laughs> Again. Yes. Well, sir, I guess what I and all the Pakistani people are wondering right about now is, do you think it's time to take a new look at today's Pakistan? Well, personally, I think it's time to focus group test a big bunch of new cliches. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for the call. Oh, my goodness. Based on that conversation, I think the only thing our Pakistani brothers could do to make their image worse would be to lose some nukes. Relax, my brother. They're working on it. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, you're on Cars I Talk. Hi, this is the presumptive Republican candidate for the U.S. uh, presidency. Mm. I guess you could say I'm a long-time, phenomenally successful businessman, Mm -hmm. also a first-time caller, Mm -hmm. although some people say I should be calling rich donors instead of some radio show I never heard of, (laughs) so... I don't know, maybe that's true, but we should look into it. Mr. Trump, it's an honor. And and may I say we've watched your campaign with something approaching trepidation. I appreciate that, but listen, fellas, I've seen some stories about what's going on there. It's been on almost none of the shows, which is a disgrace. Mm. But why are you upset about the gate the Pakistanis are building? You should be quite so grateful. I'll tell you something. If I was running your country, Mm. I wouldn't have waited for the Pakistanis. Mm. I wouldn't wouldn't have built a gate. Mm. I would have long time ago built a great, big, beautiful... Beautiful wall. Well, you don't want to door it? Fine no, with me. No uh, doors. Yeah. But I, uh, still. Mr. Mr. Trump, I think, uh, and I don't speak for the Afghan government, needless to say, <laughs> no, but no, I fine. think the reason they've yeah. opposed the gate is yeah. because the whole country opposes that borderline drawn by the colonizing English. Well, listen, Crafty Mahmoud. I call him Crafty Mahmoud. <laughs> if you don't have a border, you don't have a country. Simple as that. Well, but as many historians can tell you, sir, we had the country of Afghanistan long before the UK tried to give us that border. Listen, you want to keep letting those Muslims come into your country? I'm sure there's some very good ones. My Muslim friends love me, just to take one example. Uh, uh, Mr. Trump, we are a Muslim country. And our problem with that border is that the bad guys went across it to be protected by the Pakistanis for reasons of their own. Yeah, no, I understand all that, and as a matter of fact, a lot of people believe that President Obama has reasons of his own, too, which Mm. you can't forget. Mm. I mean, I don't know if it's true, but it's out there. Uh, Yes, sir, and questions for us before we have to make way for a Hindu Kush companion? Well, look, when I'm president, if you guys are interested, Mm. obviously, I can build a great wall. They can have their gate, you can have a wall, Mm. and in the meantime, we can figure out this whole Muslim thing. It didn't sound like a question, more like an offer, but still an honor. (laughs) (laughs) Offer? Then honor. It sounds like him. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for the call. We had help today from the Afghan Humane Society. Pets, they're not just for breakfast anymore. Legal help for cars I talk from the law firm of Ketchum and Newcomb. I'm Mahmoud. He called you Mood. Word. 
And I'm Hamid. Join us again for the next edition of Karzai Talk. This is APR, Afghanistan Public Radio. Now, news of the godly. Boys at Edmund Rice College in New South Wales, West Wollongong, as a matter of fact, in the 1980s knew that sexual predators moved freely among them and would share advice about who to avoid being alone with. That has been revealed this week, according to the Barossa Herald, in the wake of another teacher's admission of guilt over historic child sex crimes at the all-boys college. Stephen Jones said the school had felt like a dumping ground for pedophiles whose crimes were overlooked by those who could have ended the abuse. There was a whole bunch of pedophiles at the time I was there, he said, graduated in 83. Boys would avoid them in all sorts of ways. We would just talk amongst ourselves about it. Don't get caught with this person. Brother Vincent, John Vincent Roberts was allowed to teach at the school despite at least one prior complaint of abuse at another Christian Brothers school in the Australian state of New South Wales. This week, Roberts, now 73, admitted to 11 charges relating to the sexual abuse of a male student at the school in the late 1980s. Jones said classmates of his felt betrayed decades later to learn that the Christian Brothers hierarchy had knowingly transferred predators to the school. Well, it was for the good of the wine. Quote, it certainly seemed to us, the guys who were there at the time, that Wollongong was a dumping ground for brothers who'd gotten trouble in other places and they thought they'd move them down there, down here where nobody would complain, where their past wouldn't catch up with them, he said. They changed schools, but not their behavior. Brother Michael Evans was principal of the school at the time. He committed suicide before detectives could interview him about child abuse allegations. Father Peter Comensoli was the parish priest. He was jailed for abusing boys. Last month, he admitted to interfering, interfering with another three boys. And Deadline Guadalajara, Mexico, the house used until 2001 to rehabilitate pedophile Catholic priests in Mexico is an open secret that no one dares to discuss, said Cardinal Emeritus Juan Sandoval. This report by the Latin American Herald Tribune, a Venezuelan media source. The house outside San Pedrito is located in a poor area. The property has large gardens, a two-story house, and another building under the care of the sisters from the pious disciples of the Divine Master. Sandoval Iniquez, the Cardinal Emeritus, said in an interview the house was used to rehabilitate priests accused of being pedophiles until 2001 when Pope John Paul II sent Mexican bishops a letter telling them to stop covering up sexual abuse cases. Another former priest said the clergy refuses to discuss the house as a matter of church secrets. One of their rules is, quote, you have to avoid scandals. Just ask the people at Gawker. And now... And my secrets, no secrets anymore. Well, one of the cats are out of the bag, is out of the bag, See, or maybe one, more, one or more cats. CIA medical personnel acknowledged that placing detainees in small boxes barely large enough to fit their bodies was not particularly effective, but they still provided guidance permitting interrogators to continue using the so-called confinement boxes for hours on end. Sensitive CIA documents declassified this week 
are providing a new level of detail on the intimate involvement of the agency's medical staff during its post 9-11 torture program. Officials assigned to the Office of Medical Staff provided precise specifications for enforcing sleep deprivation, limiting the caloric intake of detainees' food, and the proper positions for waterboarding, as outlined in a 2004 document providing, quote, guidelines on medical and psychological support, unquote, for torture. This according to The Guardian, reporting on the declassified papers in the event that a detainee stopped eating inside the agency's unacknowledged prisons overseas known as black sites, the Office of Medical Staff advised the preferred method to forcibly feed a detainee was rectally, a procedure that human rights activists, activists have equated to sexual assault. Since the uh, Senate report a couple of years ago criticized the CIA running, for running what it characterized as an ineffective, brutal regimen of incommunicado confinement, the agency has pointed to the involvement of the medical staff to claim it performed torture within doctor-mandated safeguards. The guidelines are an affront to my profession. The medical and mental health professions and health professionals should know better, said the medical director of Physicians for Human Rights. Among the procedures discussed in the 2004 document is a method for placing detainees in what it termed awkward boxes, the technique first proposed by those two contractor psychologists, Mitchell and Jessen, is known as the confinement box. It was dramatized in Zero Dark Thirty, little cubes allowing not much more than a cross-legged sitting position, according to the OMS document. Agency Torturers were permitted to place detainees into those boxes for up to two hours consecutively, assuming no significant medical conditions were present. Longer boxes, rectangular and just over the detainee's height, not much wider than his body and comparatively shallow, could hold detainees for up to eight consecutive hours, up to a total of 18 hours a day. Abu Zabeda, whose 2002 detention became the pilot program for CIA torture, spent a cumulative 266 hours, more than 11 days, within the longer box. Senate report described it as reminiscent of a coffin. The confinement occurred within the span of an aggressive 20-day period, according to the Senate report. A different OMS document, also declassified this week, concluded that Abu Zabeda would likely have cooperated with interrogators without being waterboarded. He was waterboarded 83 times in the span of a month. OMS personnel providing the guidelines took a dim view of the intelligence value of the confinement boxes. They've not proved particularly effective, as they may become a safe haven offering a respite from interrogation. The Geneva Conventions bar close confinement for prisoners of war, except where necessary to safeguard their health. Elsewhere in the document, the medical staff advises CIA interrogators on medically acceptable procedures for various techniques, including prolonged stress positions, dietary restrictions, and waterboarding. Without medical contraindications, detainees can be kept in shackled stress positions for extended periods up to 48 hours in a standing position if the hands are no higher than head level and weight is borne by the lower extremities. Keeping detainees standing will yield, quote, dependent edema, the accumulation of fluid in the lower extremities. Regular attention to leg circumference and the fit of shackles is mandatory, according to the document. CIA could, for shorter periods of time, inflict more stressful shackled positions. Between two and four hours in such a position would merit caution. 
one detainee, Khalid El-Masri, whom the CIA held in 2004 by mistake, lost 50 pounds during five months of black site captivity, according to a different declassified document. The document writes, waterboarding is by far the most traumatic of the enhanced interrogation techniques. They were, the interrogators were advised by the medical staff how to revive suffocated detainees, a sub-siphoid thrust, and urges aggressive medical intervention should such first aid fail. Beyond three to five days of an aggressive program of waterboarding, it may not be medically appropriate, they said. The CIA is barred from conducting human experiments, but the OMS instructed that every application of the waterboard be thoroughly documented in order to best inform future medical judgments and recommendations. The CIA documents were released in response to transparency lawsuits brought by the ACLU and Vice News. Just following up on the memo written by then-Deputy Attorney General John Yu during the Bush administration saying, it was all legal. He just wrote and ran. Torture memo man. He went and banned the band. Memo Man You've got you some detainees You don't know what to do Do you read them their Miranda rights Or cover them with pool Are you doing something illegal Or proper through and through There's only one guy to call The one to ask is you That is a He's in that secret clan Torture Memo Man He had a clever plan Torture Memo Man Oh, you've got some evildoers they will not say food. A little pain and torment might change their point of view. But before you waterboard them, you wonder, could they sue? What guy has got the answer? The one to ask is you. Check your mouth. I'm talking about God. You He just rose and ran. Expired. 
This week's apologies. Just hours after federal officials say his son went on the deadliest shooting rampage in U.S. history, Mir Sadiq was at a loss to explain what happened in an interview. I apologize for what my son did. We are saying we are apologizing for the whole incident. We are in shock, like the whole country. And the owner of a Port St. Lucie, Florida gun shop, where he purchased two of the guns used in the deadly mass shooting, says he wishes the shooter had not chosen his shop. I am sorry he picked my place. David Bowie's longtime producer, Tony Viscotti, has apologized for negative comments he made about the voice of the singer Adele, suggesting the singer's vocals might have been digitally enhanced. The singer responded with an onstage profanity regarding a body part she does not possess. The Hull Daily Mail in the United Kingdom apologized after publishing a fake quote about a woman seeing her dead grandmother's face in a cloud. Julia Middleton complained to the print regulator over the newspaper's article in February. Look, it's my grand Hull woman, says strange cloud in heaven, sent from dead Nan, grandmother. Middleton complained she had not made the comments attributed to her in the article, and the article was disrespectful about the death of her grandmother. But it's Hull. Speaking of Brits, singer Cliff Richard says he's pleased with the prosecutor's decision to drop an investigation into alleged historical sexual abuse. The Crown Prosecution Service said there was insufficient evidence to prosecute. South Yorkshire police have apologized for their handling of the case. One more British apology. The billionaire, former owner of a collapsed UK retailer, BHS, apologized for the collapse of the venerable chain. Philip Green was a private equity investor in the chain BHS, which was a one-time legendary in the British retail industry. The Louisville Courier-Journal apologized this week for ignoring Muhammad Ali's change of name back in 1964 and instead insisting on using his birth name Cassius Clay until 1970 when the newspaper finally began referring to him as Ali. The editorial board said they couldn't even speculate on what the motives were of editors back then. Oh, I can. Emily Austin, a fired force Fox Sports Florida sideline reporter, apologized this weekend for her comments on Jews in Boca Raton and Chinese and Mexican people. Her apology posted on Twitter said, I made a terrible mistake. I was in an environment where I was trying to be funny and make a joke, and my comments were insensitive. I sincerely apologize. I know I have some growing to do. Something like this was ne- will never happen again. Well, that part is true. She was fired by Fox Sports Florida after she made controversial racist comments in a Facebook Live interview. Humor by amateurs, ladies and gentlemen. Renewing the warning. The Apologies of the Week, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
Well, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over the same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. The UFSEN 40 cable system in Japan, around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network, up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet, 7.490 megahertz shortwave, among, around the world via the Internet at two different locations, live and archived whenever you want at harryshearer.com and kcsn.org, on the Mighty 104 in Berlin, on Soho Radio in London, Available for your smartphone through Stitcher.com and available as a free podcast from SoundCloud, Sideshow Network, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and WWNO.org. And it would be just like not keeping people in that box for more than a couple of days if you'd agree to join with me then. Would you? Alrighty, thank you very much. Uh huh. you can keep those two psychologists in the box however long you want the email address for this broadcast playlist of the music heard here on your chance to get the cars I talk t-shirts with the boys the guys on them at harryshearer.com I'm on twitter at the harryshearer show chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from down under.